This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Ballots for the August primary election uh, have gone out, and uh, candidates vying for office have little time to move into high gear. Some voters already know who they will vote for, but many do not. That undecided vote is critical. This morning, we talked with State Representative uh, Patrick Bronco. The former diplomat has two years under his belt serving in the State House as a Democrat. But is that enough to propel him into Congress? Bronco explains why he's running for the vacant congressional seat in the House of Representatives. Number one, I think it's important for the people of Hawaii to have a diverse set of, of viewpoints. The other thing, too, is many of the issues that we're talking about now are the same issues that we were talking about when I was a kid and even before that, right? And I, I'm tired of career politicians saying they're going to do something, give lip service, and do nothing. And this is why I think we need a next generation of service-orientated leaders who are willing to step up to the plate and willing to do what's right for the community, whether in elected office or out of elected office. And what inspired you to get into politics? Did you have any mentors, anybody that was helping to guide you along the way? Actually, I can share a funny story with you. Um, When I was, was young in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher was uh, cousins with Governor Waihe'e. So we visited Washington Place, and we were in the back bedroom where Queen Lil Kalani slept, and my grandmother was on the tour with us, and she fell, and she fell on the bed. And the docent was like, you cannot be on this bed. And my grandmother had just fallen. And inside, I was like, no one talks to my tutu like this. I'm going to run for office one day so my grandmother can sleep in this bed. (laughs) But that's what kind of started me. And, you know, I had people in my life that, you know, really cared. I had teachers. I had my family. Um, To share a little bit more, you know, my story, I'm the son of a teenage mom and a dad who didn't finish high school. My biography is not supposed to stay former U.S. diplomat, state representative, and now a candidate for Congress. And so this is my story. And this is what I, I think that needs to be shown and needs to see that, you know, nowadays, my story is more likely, it was improbable back in 1987, but it's completely improbable now. Most likely someone like me or my family would have moved to the continent. They, uh, they wouldn't be able to make it here or they wouldn't be able to ha- have a house here. And that needs to change. And we need leaders who actually have these lived experiences. I live in a multi-generational household. I live in my grandma's sewing room. No, I'm a state representative, and I can't even afford a house in my own community. That's a problem, and we need leaders to step up and that are willing to take on these issues. Now, you have only been in office, though, for two years. Mm -hmm. Some might think, gosh, you know, pretty gutsy going um, for for this particular race, because some might feel that you don't have enough experience. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we need bold leaders, but I think the other thing that, that people forget is that I was a U.S. diplomat for eight years. I'm the only candidate in the race that has significant foreign policy, national security experience at the federal level. I worked in Colombia, Pakistan, Venezuela, some of the toughest countries and the toughest foreign policy issues that we had. I even worked with the Secretary of State's office as well. And I think that's what uniquely positions me for the job is that I'm grounded in our Hawaiian values, but also understand state issues, federal issues, and we need someone that's gonna be able to get up there and also commit to the job. And you know, I'm 35 right now, the same age as Senator Inouye was when he went to Congress, right? Patsy Mink, 37, Senator Schatz, elected at 38 to statewide office. We need young, service-orientated leaders that are willing to step up to the challenge, but have the experience. I'm just curious, what led you down the path uh, of working with the State Department? 
So I received a critical language scholarship at Hawaii Pacific University from the State Department to study Korean. And when I was there in this program, they said, if you like studying languages, you should consider becoming a U.S. diplomat. So Congressman Rangel was an African-American congressman from New York, traveled all around the world, and they always thought he was the driver. And so what he realized was the face of American diplomacy wasn't reflective of the diversity of America. So he created a program that recruited young candidates from across the country, sent us to school. So the Congress paid for my education at Johns Hopkins University. I received my master's in international economics and prepared our fellowship. So I worked for Congressman Eni Faleomavaenga from American Samoa, and I did my diplomatic training in Embassy Seoul, and it pipelined me into the Foreign Service. So that's what started me on my, my pathway as a U.S. diplomat. And so uh, tell us about your experiences there in those countries. I mean, you know, what struck you as you went from place to place and, and what did you take back home? The, the number one thing that struck me, whether I was in Colombia, Venezuela, Pakistan, Afghanistan, wherever I was, people know Hawaii and people love Hawaii. Hawaii has what I call a soft diplomacy power. And so that was very critical when I was negotiating, when I was at the table, when they asked me, where are you from? And I would say, Hawaii. And immediately, it would be the hardest issues, but immediately their face would brighten up and tell me a story. Even though they have never, some of these individuals never even visited Hawaii, would say like, hey, I'm a surfer. Or, hey, you know, I, I've actually read a book on Ho'oponopono. It was amazing. I sat next to the Colombian ambassador to Zimbabwe. And she had shared with me how she read a book on Ho'oponopono, and she adopted that in her conflict resolution. Hawaii has amazing power, and this is what we need in Congress. Someone who's seen the world, who knows that, but understands and can really bring that aloha diplomacy to Washington, D.C. What does your grandmother tell you these days about your campaign? She is always saying, regardless of what happens, she's proud of me that I, I stepped up to the plate and that I'm trying to fight for the people of Hawaii. And that's, that's the message. And my grandmother, she's very involved. She actually fell recently, and she got a cast. But uh, she asked me to write, vote for Bronco on her cast, actually. Because <laughs> she's proud. And, you know, my grandmother taught me this kind of growth and grit mentality. You know, she came from a family of seven. My grandmother finished high school and was a, was a homemaker. But she taught me that if you work hard, you study hard, people will see the good work. And, you know, thanks to her, uh, I, I'll share a little bit about our first race and our, our state health race. You know, it was during COVID. We wouldn't be able to knock doors. We weren't able to go door to door. But what people needed was, was supplies. And my crisis management skills went, went into play. And so my ohana and my, my grandmother, we prepared kupuna kits, which were basically Ziploc bags with Kansas soup, sanitizer, applesauce, gloves that we gave out to the community, 500 of them. But when I was delivering these, we noticed people needed masks. So we set up blue out tables in our garage. And I don't know how to sew, but every morning I went down to the fabric mart and I waited in line because at that time you only could buy you know five yards of elastic every day because there was a shortage. We would buy this. And we ended up sewing over 4,000 hand-sewn masks that we gave out to the community for free. And that's what my campaign is about. I walk the walk, I see issues, and I'm willing to take them on and make sure that our community is taken care of. And when policy is started in the community, it's the best policy. And you mentioned that you're living in your grandma's sewing room. What do you think needs to be done to provide more affordable housing for our people? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be solved in one day. It's going to take county, state, and federal level. But at the federal level, the number one thing is seniority. 
all finance bills originate in the house and we need someone that's committed to staying and build that seniority and understand the you know what the job takes and not only you know think of the glamour of being washington but that travel as well going back from washington dc to honolulu and when you're in honolulu it's not about just staying in honolulu it's about going to Kauai, molokai lanai maui hawaii island and repeat and i think that's what sets me apart i'm the only candidate that's done that flown into afghanistan 17 hours negotiate for six hours back on the plane to washington and then back out doing it again we need someone who's willing to do the practical side of the job. And when it comes to housing, it's about getting those federal dollars for infrastructure, advocating to more funds to supplement the $600 million we get, just gave in the state legislature for Native Hawaiians. There's a lot we can do, but that takes someone who's committed to the job. And this is why I've asked everyone in the CD2 race to commit that they will not run for another seat. They will not run for senator. They will not run for governor, but are committed to this seat. And I'm proud to take that pledge. As, as you were you know, embarking on your career with the Foreign Service, what made you decide to come back home and enter politics? You know, Hawaii is my pico, right? And I knew I had to come home, especially for us Native Hawaiians. There's very few of us who run for elected office, and it's very important to have that voice. That was very important. And for me, I feel Hawaii has given me so much, right? I shared a little bit about my, my improbable story. I had a great education from the Kamehameha Schools. Hawaii Pacific University, I had a full merit scholarship there. I received a full ride for Johns Hopkins University. You know, part of my phrase, but it's poho, right? It's without substance if I'm not willing to come home and step up to the plate. And this is what I'm about. It's about service to our community, service to our country, and service to our people. Well, Representative Bronco, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Mahalo. And good, good luck. That was Patrick Bronco, who's running in the 2nd Congressional District, encompassing the Big Island, Maui, Molokai, Lanai, Kauai, and parts of Oahu. You're looking at Honolulu Civil Beat's political coverage just out over the weekend. More on the top candidates for governor, politics and opinion editor Chad Blair on the line to talk us through Kevin Dayton's story today. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so um, more focus on the candidates that are running for uh, governor, and the subject is housing. Right, and, and the reason Kevin's not here today is because, as you mentioned, he's this is political season, right? There's less than three weeks until the primary. This is Kevin's second in a series on specific issues uh, facing Hawaii, and in particular, uh, these first two stories have been on the Democratic uh, candidates for governor. Uh, the cost of living story from Kevin ran on Sunday. That's still up on our website. You're, you're welcome to read it. But today, the focus is on what Vicki Cayetano and Josh Green had to say about affordable housing. Both of them, and they've said this publicly a number of times now, would treat it as an emergency. And, and if they can, somehow use the governor's emergency powers, which we saw Governor David Ige used with COVID extensively, to address affordable housing. Uh, you're Kai Kaheli, by the way, did not respond to, uh, or rather he did, he declined to cooperate with Kevin saying, well, it's in the story, he doesn't think that Civil Beat has been very fair about our coverage on the governor's race. Uh, 
we think otherwise, but just trying to be fair. But we do have Vicki Cayetano and Josh Green talking at some length, if somewhat vaguely as well, about this pressing problem. Yeah, so how exactly do you cut through the red tape if we declare of an emergency with housing? You know, it's it's got to be the biggest question. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Green uh, did say that he really wants to expedite the permitting process, process uh, the permits, right, for state housing projects that have already been approved by the Land Use Commission. By his estimate, there's about 42,000 units that, that have been okayed but are waiting to be uh, moved on. Having said that, uh, Kevin did do some research. It is complicated. That 42,000 figure is a little misleading because those projects include Ho'opili and Koa Ridge. Those projects are actually PAL now. But but I think what the lieutenant governor is getting to is that red tape uh, also mentioned by Josh Green is understaffing at the State Historic Preservation Division. As you know, Shipti has to sign off on these things. Vicki Cayetano, too, has expressed concern about the layers of bureaucracy uh, within the state. Yeah, and even the counties, you know, are having issues with uh, staff shortages, you know, and getting those permits out. So it, it really is kind of depressing when you think about how slow these units are getting uh, built. Yeah, Kevin talked to uh, an economist with UHERO there at the University of Hawaii, the Economic Research Organization. And and, and they agree with, with uh, Cayetano uh, and, and Green that really the cost of living, I mean, is there anyone that disagrees with this, is the biggest concern here in the state of Hawaii and affordable housing, if that's even possible, is really the key issue. The, the concern is, and here's where you, you, you mentioned the county process, that's what's so difficult is that there's overlapping uh, permits that are necessary. I mean, it's one thing to go through the LUC. That takes its own time. But the counties, all four of them, have their own uh, planning agencies. And really, in many ways, it is at the county level where this has been a frustration. What can a governor do? This is something the economist was raising. I mean, think about all the problems we heard about the Department of Planning and Permitting here in the city and county, right? The the corruption that's gone on, the payments to expedite process. So even if you become governor, how can you convince the counties to move faster on this? Right. And there has been that whole back and forth uh, on uh, cracking down illegal vacation rentals, uh, you know, and, and to have those units turn back into the housing inventory for local people, local families. Right. And we are still talking about that, dealing with the Airbnbs and so forth. You know, one interesting thing that stayed with me from this article today is that it can take from the moment of conception, when a developer comes up with an idea, proposal for to put up a new project for housing, it can take 10 years from the mention of it to its actual beginning of construction. I mean, that's an enormous amount of time. And and even when things do get approval, there's still concerns. I think Vicky Cayetano pointed to the Aloha Stadium project. I mean, there's a lot of questions still about whether that's going to work, to build, to build housing tied to the rail line, to put up a new stadium. So it's a very difficult thing. It's one thing to say, let's fast track it. But really, it's a long-term process in so many ways. Oh, yeah. we got to deal with sewage capacity, you know, things like that, basic things <laughs> Envir- like that. Environmental impact statements, right? Yes, so. yes. Yeah, and that adds to the time. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Anytime. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's coverage at civilbeat.org.
be able to apply for a U.S. passport at the Ala Moana Satellite City Hall. It's a pilot project between the U.S. Passport Agency and the Honolulu City and County. We talked to Kim Hashiro, the director of the city's customer service department, about how it's supposed to work. This service is, is actually being offered for the first time ever at a city facility. And with travel opening up, this new service really benefits Oahu residents with plans to travel ab- abroad. Online appointments can be booked at the city's Aloha Q reservation system. And we have the ability to schedule up to 32 appointments daily during our normal business hours from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So this service is going to be incorporated into all of the other services that we provide at the Alamana Satellite. Okay, so it's not like a designated clerk or a, a, a window where you go? Correct. So all of our staff uh, is being trained to process passport applications, and this will provide you know, the broadest type of coverage possible even through you know, vacations and occasional sick leave. So I just recently sent my passport, which is expiring, you know, in uh, to get renewed. You know, are there specific types of cases that you'll be handling there at the Alamoana Satellite City Hall? So we're going to be handling any type of DS-11 type transaction. So this would be, you know, your typical either applying for first passport or if a previous passport was issued more than 15 years ago, issued under the age of 16 or lost, stolen, or damaged. So on the application form, which is the DS-11, it actually specifies um, what type of passport will be provided at our satellite. So we have information on our website at honolulu.gov slash CSD. On the right-hand side, there is a passport services link right now, right-hand column. And it actually provides a lot of information. So we, we'd like to encourage the public to go to our website and read through that information. Generally, when you do submit your application, you have a, a picture attached, passport photo attached. So basically, people who apply, they have to have all that ready to go uh, when they come down there to your office. Correct. So they'll need to make an appointment first on Aloha Queue. They'll need to bring their passport application form completed, but not signed. So that's really important to remember. Don't sign it because it must be witnessed by the satellite representative during the appointment. You got to have a check to, to pay for it, your money order. Right. So check or money, money order, and there is a $35 processing fee as well as a separate check or money order will be required for the passport itself. And that $35 fee, does that go to the city? Yes, that goes to the city. How long will this uh, pilot run? So we're looking to run this pilot for several months and evaluate as we go. And in addition to the application form and the payment, photo services are not offered at this time, so they will need to bring a valid passport photo with them to the appointment. And once the Satellite City Hall completes the intake process, the packet will be mailed to the U.S. Passport Office for processing and completion. And if there are any questions about the application or the, you know, the identification that's attached, then the U.S. Passport Office will contact the applicant directly. But hopefully everything will go smoothly and the applicant will receive a completed passport in the mail. Okay, so it won't be a, a city employees contacting them. It'll be 
the U.S. Passport Agency. Correct. Correct. So the city's role in this is really just the intake process, and then it is still sent off to the U.S. Passport Office for processing and completion. The time that it takes to process, is it still the same? Well, I believe it's 8 to 12 weeks, and there is an expedited process that costs more that they can also apply for. So that's why the cost of the passport itself varies, but our intake fee of $35 per passport is the same. I believe that there's a, a rush that there's that additional fee. Right. So that, that remains the same. And, and this process is similar to what other passport intake locations follow. So, for example, at post offices, libraries, and the University of Hawaii, if listeners are familiar with um, having their passports completed at those locations, it would be an identical process. Well, it's very nice of the city to help out the passport agency with their backlog, but we were dealing with backlogs, oh gosh, of I think just our driver's license at one time. I mean, did we get that cleared? Because you folks had even opened up on Saturdays, I think, to help with the processing during the pandemic. Yes. So last year, we were thankfully able to clear our backlog. We have capacity now, and we have continued to provide um, service for renewals at certain locations every other Saturday. And we're also offering additional road tests every other Saturday. So we're really trying to expand services and provide the public with convenient opportunity to complete their transactions. Okay, but the passport services, those are only Monday through Friday, correct? Correct. Okay. That's the Alamona satellite. And then the other thing I have to ask, you know, but maybe we should uh, talk about the Holo Holo cards. So right now for the Holo card, they can go to the Middle Street Bus Pass office to obtain a Holo card as well as other retail locations on the Holo card website. Our satellites, other than Ala Moana, will continue to process holo cards. So for new senior holo cards or youth cards, an appointment is required because it does require additional time to process. But for a standard adult or general holo card, it is an express service, so an appointment is not required at our other satellite location. But if you just need to put like money on the card... If you need to reload, that that is an express transaction and an appointment is not necessary. Okay. If people are coming in to obtain a certain type of holo card and they didn't have the information that they needed, it could have resulted in a in an issue or a problem. What we're trying to do now is actually make it really clear that any reloading or any new adult card or general card, which is very straightforward and quick, that can be done without an appointment. And they need to make an appointment for a senior card or a youth card. But the press release that went out on Wednesday about the Ala Moana uh, Satellite City Hall temporarily um, halting the holo card service, was, was that because you were anticipating the ramp up of the passport applications? Well, because we had this very large demand at Ala Moana for the holo cards, and there were long lines at times, we needed time to reassess that service. So that's what we're doing currently. But in the meantime, we're starting up this passport service, which is a completely separate service. Right, right. But you're, you're trying to divert uh, some of the traffic over to the other satellite city halls. So we're trying to manage the overall you know, demand and flow of the holo cards. And we're trying to get um, you know, the other locations, yes, they will continue to be able to process. 
I just like to encourage the public to go to our website, honolulu.gov slash CSD, click on the passport services link and carefully read the information that's provided. We have detailed information that's provided and we want to make the experience, you know, very positive for the public when they come in and very smooth, as smooth as, as possible for us also, so that we can process and get the applicant out. Um, within 10 to 15 minutes. That's our goal. So if we can have this joint ability to have people come in prepared with their application form completed but not signed, you know, have their passport photo as well as their payment ready, we're really looking at a very smooth and, and positive experience. That was Kim Hashiro, director of Honolulu's Department of Customer Service. She was talking about the new passport services uh, now available uh, at the Almoana Satellite City Hall location. Today's the first day you can make appointments and a check uh, of the office just before news time today said that uh, people are snatching up those uh, appointments. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. HPR is hiring. Are you looking for a career change? We have several positions for you to consider. We're looking for new team members to organize our broadcast fundraisers and events, crunch numbers, and help our members with a smile. If you love HPR and want to play an important supporting role behind the scenes, apply today. View our job openings online at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. It has been a week since a massive wave event sent surf hurling onto the island's uh, south shores. We wondered how a major sand replenishment project in Waikiki weathered the high-energy pounding. For that, we turned to scientists with the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. Our beach trip co coincided with researchers sending up a drone to map the sand uh, before and after check. We surveyed the shoreline first with hydrologist Shelley Hamel. We've been taking the drone up now for years to do surveys, and so we thought it was a good opportunity with this big swell coming to do a pre-swell and post-swell drone survey. And so, yeah, we took it up this morning as our first post-swell survey, and we're planning on being out here every morning to kind of get that daily change for the next two weeks. So what can you tell us? Uh, any difference with this uh, unusual storm uh, surge that we had? Actually, you know, the beach is looking really good. And um, we didn't notice any erosion whatsoever. If anything, the beach has gained a little bit of width. And um, this is specific to Royal Hawaiian Beach. Did that surprise you? I don't know. What were you expecting? You know, we've, we've looked at this beach for years now. And so we know that when hurricanes come through or when big swells come through, at least the western end of that beach tends to accrete or gain width. And so we were kind of expecting it to, although like this swell was humongous, right? The biggest swell in 
maybe 30 years. And so we're like, okay, does it hold through? Does it hold true even with such a huge swell? And it turns out it, it does. We talk about rising sea levels. What can you tell us about you know, what, what that means to this area here in Waikiki? You know, Waikiki, it's really low lying and a lot of it was constructed by um, dredge and fill. And when they filled in, they didn't really build that much elevation into the land to develop upon. And so over the past hundred years, we've seen about a half a foot of rise in this area. And we're already starting to see flooding coming from not just wave overwash, but also from inundation of groundwater and also failure of our, some of our storm drainage. So that's impacting some of these buildings, like what, in their basements? Yeah, we've seen a lot of uh, basement flooding throughout the area, especially um, for buildings that have underground basements. That flooding comes from both groundwater inundation and that uh, backflow from drainage. So, you know, as far as then our plans and our studies to deal with the rising sea levels and the, I guess, the intrusion of the, the water, what's ahead? What's to come? Well, we can probably expect continued erosion of this area. For every increment of sea level rise we see, we can expect about 60 to 100 times that amount of width loss. So, for example, if you have a foot of sea level rise, you can expect 60 to 100 feet of beach loss. And so we can expect to see further erosion across all of our state shorelines, including Waikiki Beach. We can expect king tides to get more frequent. Well, I guess king tides, that's, an, that's the highest tide of the year. And so is, we're expecting to see it become more and more extreme. And so the high tides that we're seeing today, like the height of those king tides, it will become more and more frequent. And um, we're also expecting to see worsening inland flooding, which is something that not everybody is expecting. You had mentioned earlier that you plan to keep putting the drones up just to, I guess, collect the data. How often will you be doing this? So we, do, we put the drone up quarterly just to make sure that the beach nourishments are doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? Um, so we'll continue doing that, but if we see like hurricanes coming through or big swells coming through, then maybe we'll do more episodic drone surveys. And Dolan Eversall is a coastal geologist with the University of Hawaii Sea Grant Program and coordinator for the Waikiki uh, Sand Replenishment Project. He says that even though the beaches fared well in this most, in re uh, most recent storm surge, we need to start planning for the next disruptive event now. Based on what we just heard from Shelley and based on the science, the climate change science, sea level rise, um, it's important to be thinking about in terms of, so what do we do about that? So now what? And there are a couple things that are underway that are worth mentioning. Uh, the first is on the ocean side, on the beach side of Waikiki, the State Department of Land and Natural Resources has what's called an environmental impact statement that's underway. It's gone through a draft uh, phase and it's now entering a final draft that is yet to be finalized, but it's getting close. And included in this EIS is our four separate projects. And each project is slightly different, but you can think of it simply as two of the projects include continuing to do sand nourishment, including the Royal Hawaiian Beach, which was just completed uh, last year, and a sand transfer uh, project in the uh, Fort Derussi, Halekoa area to move sand from one side of the beach to the other. Those are relatively simple. The other two projects involve building new structures and new beaches around those. 
Uh, one of the proposed projects included in the EIS is in the Cujillo Beach Eva Basin. So that's the area um, next to the Hula Mound and the Banyan Tree, the turnaround area. Proposed changes to the breakwater there and a new groin. And it would essentially be in the same footprint, but it would be higher and wider and more effective at stabilizing a beach on the inshore or landward side of that. And the more immediate horizon, these would all be phased projects, so they're not all gonna happen at once, but on the more immediate horizon is the most ambitious of those four projects included in the EIS is a series of T-head groins, three T-head groins and two L-spur groins, rock rubble mound groins in the Holly Kalani beach shell. So this is the area fronting the Sheraton Waikiki, Holly Kalani, and Outrigger Reef. In this particular proposed design are three T-head groins and beach sand that would be filled behind these groins to build new beaches where there currently are none. So I, I mentioned that as the most ambitious because it uh, intends to create new beaches where there really never was a beach of that magnitude in the past. Like how far out would that be? It's really difficult for me to put a time horizon on it, but the next steps would be for the final EIS to be heard and thus authorized by the Department of Land and Natural Resources, their land board. Uh, we expect that might happen sometime this fall. And then it would go to the governor for signature and authorization. If and when that does happen, that doesn't authorize the projects. It's the environmental document that would be used for all the permitting that would then follow. We expect that permitting process to take about a year, maybe slightly longer. So I think it's reasonable to say we're probably a year and a half to two years away from anything happening that's included in the EIS. And would the plan be similar to what you did with the sand replenishment, suck sand off from offshore? Two of the four projects included in the EIS involve moving sand and, and bringing in sand from offshore. One of those that you might be familiar with is the sand restoration for the Royal Hawaiian Beach. And this includes an offshore dredge system, pumping it to shore and then truck hauling it down to the Royal Hawaiian Beach, just as it happened in May of 2021. So in the EIS is that same project, but it's proposed to be an ongoing project that would have a permit that would allow it to happen more than once on an as needed basis. And we expect that particular project to be needed about every five to 10 years. And depending on uh, stability of the sand and events that occur, it could be closer to five years rather than 10. So thus the reason to put it in a programmatic EIS so it's permitted to be allowed to, to happen in a more expedited way. We get events like what we had uh, you know, last weekend, but how do we make this area more resilient at the end of the day? Yeah, resilience is a really important term, perhaps overused, but we talk about community resilience a lot in the work that we're involved with. Uh, the University of Hawaii has a role in providing some of the information behind resilience initiatives and decision-making around that. And one of the things that I'm really happy to, to be part of is a Waikiki Resilience Plan. There's now funding in the state budget this year provided to the State Office of Planning and Sustainable Development to develop uh, the framework for a Waikiki Resilience Plan. This is a form of climate adaptation. You start to plan for the changes. And this Resilience Plan is focused, whereas I had just mentioned the EIS is focused on the beach, the Waikiki Resilience Plan is focused on the built environment. So some of the work that uh, my colleague Shelley had mentioned with groundwater inundation, 
starting to inundate buildings and infrastructure and utilities, the, a resilience plan will identify techniques and methods to try to adapt um, some of that infrastructure to the proposed or for the anticipated changes that are coming, particularly sea level rise. That's one that we're, we're paying a lot of attention to. So you're going to be hearing more about the Waikiki Resilience Plan. It hasn't officially kicked off yet. The funding is just getting established to start to develop the plan itself. The State Office of Planning and Sustainable Development um, will hopefully be engaging the University of Hawaii and providing some expertise, uh, things from architectural designs to urban land use and planning um, support to the science, uh, like sea level rise science that we just heard about. So all of those components and others will be included in a comprehensive plan that will ultimately result in developing a vision for what Waikiki will look like in the future. Uh, that was uh, uh, researcher Dolan Eversall and Shelley Habel, who are happy to report that the sand replenishment project at the Royal Hawaiian Beach fared pretty well after the massive waves hit the south shore of Oahu last weekend. few replaceable body parts, but when it comes to hips or knees, sometimes titanium can save the day. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the latest in knee and hip replacements, outpatient surgeries, and how a robot can help. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. It's not often that Hawaii businesses grow large enough that they expand to the continental U.S., but that's exactly the story behind Uncle's Kualoha Ice Cream Sandwiches. Paul and Barbara Logan started their business in 2013 in the small town of Wailua on Oahu's North Shore. It was just supposed to be something they did for fun as they sold their produce at the community farmer's market. But the Sammies took off. In the years since, they've won several local Best of Awards. And in 2020, Pacific Business News named it one of Hawaii's fastest-growing companies. The growth has been so exponential, it's now expanding into mainland markets and offering an investment opportunity. In celebration of July as National Ice Cream Month, the Conversations' Russell Subiano caught up with the Logans at their home in Wailua. Whose idea was it to make and sell ice cream sandwiches? Well, Paul's the chef, so yeah. it's his idea. We're, we're standing at the farmer's market behind our table selling his lettuce and noticing there's no desserts around. There's a lot of dinner vendors. Mm -hmm. And Paul's like, well, sounds like I need to make something. <laughs> and uh, so we had a chat about what would work. And we thought that ice cream sandwiches, because you can hold them in one hand and keep mm -hmm. doing your shopping, you don't have to have a plate and a fork. So he went home and gave it a try and voila. Yeah, it was pretty much that. We also were looking for something that we weren't needing to do a lot of prep at the market. We didn't want to be scooping and toppings. And so it was something we could come to the market. It was all packaged. It was all ready to go. And we would focus on great taste, great quality and see what happens. 
your guys' packaging is really good too, because if you open it right, you can hold the sandwich in the package and you'll never get a drop of melted ice cream on you. And so I, I've driven a few times with one in my hand and it's, it's safe. Nice. I love that. Do you guys have a relationship with ice cream before this? Did you work in, in an ice cream place or, or make ice cream before? Oh my God, I have always loved ice cream. Since I was a little kid, I've been a big fan of ice cream. <laughs> so, uh, But we did have a restaurant. We had a restaurant in the past. Oh, okay. And Paul was the chef and I worked the front and the business. So the uh, idea yeah. of food. and Yeah, so we've been in the food business before and love that. And I would say... Probably historically in that, my approach to food is always it's an expression of love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when someone comes to your house to eat or you're serving anything, you're expressing your regard for them. So we're not interested in making something that isn't remarkable or doesn't produce a, wow, this is really good sensation. Mm -hmm. What interests us, I would say, you know, People say, oh, what's your passion? It must be ice cream. I said, no, it's actually generating an experience for the people that we're feeding. In a nutshell, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. I like to say we're committed to wow. There you oh, go. When you guys started this, when you guys had this first idea and you started making your first sandwiches, did you guys think this was just like something you would do on the side for fun? Or did you ever think that someday this would become the only thing you do? Absolutely the former. Absolutely. <laughs> it was something to do while we were at the farmer's market anyway. And we hope people would like it, but we had no idea that it would come to pretty well dominate our lives. <laughs> so it completely eclipsed the lettuce. Yes. And it was yes. kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> had to get out of the lettuce business. It's like, well, we weren't getting any Instagram, uh, Facebook messages back about our great lettuce, but we sure were on the ice cream. So. You guys are now expanding to Los Angeles, to Las Vegas. Can you talk about the expansion? Yeah. So, right this minute, we are finishing up a facility in Las Vegas. And it will make the sandwiches there and distribute them to that region, kind of Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada. We make all of our products on the North Shore in Wailua, and we're expanding that facility because we really want to be able to cover all the islands. Then we just size-wise, we're pretty much reached our maximum we can do mm -hmm. uh, so we're about doubling our space here in Wailua, and that'll allow us to have them everywhere in Hawaii. Yeah. I think it takes a special product or a special service to be able to expand to the continent. It seems like most of the time businesses are doing it the other way. And I've heard people say that it's hard to start a business here. What kind of difficulties did you have to overcome it is a challenge, especially food manufacturing is difficult in Hawaii. Just with the lack of raw materials, there's no cows on Oahu anymore. Even the sugar doesn't come from here anymore. And so what grows here, if you looked at macadamia nuts or lilikoi or we use coffee, coffee and, and lavender. lavender from Maui, you know, they're actually these great flavors, but they're not a big part of the overall volume, volume the you know, the cost of what we put together. So yeah, that's a, a real challenge. You know, your rent is higher, your electricity is off the charts. 
especially in a freezer business, electricity is huge. <laughs> <It's terrible. laughs> you know, so so it's really a challenge, and we're been able to, I think, coming in at with a premium product mm -hmm. gives us a little bit of leverage in our niche. You know, there's a lot of people that with ice cream novelties that do a vanilla or maybe a chocolate, but that's about it, you know, and we'll do 30 different flavors in a year. That kind of niche allows us to be different and you have to be different. So we're really excited to take these lessons and the product and then see um, in a place where we don't have quite the headwinds against us. But, but our, you know, we're really committed. We're, we're going to keep the Hawaii operation. The Hawaii facility is going to produce everything that is eaten in Hawaii and really feel that's a special part of what we are and yeah. who we are. We're really, we're really proud of the North Shore jobs that we're able to provide up here. Because if you live on the North Shore, you're kind of far from other things. And it's nice if you can find yourself a job that's right in your backyard. And we're proud of that and committed to keeping those going. How many employees do you have? We're right at uh, around 20 right now. It's, uh, it's, and, awesome and it's an amazing group of people. Yeah. It, yeah. Got some really good talent out here besides surfers. Barb, what's your favorite flavor? Oh, man. Unless I'm in a little bit different mood, it's got to be the Lilikoi. Yeah. Otherwise, it's the coffee. I just think our coffee is just wicked good. Paul, uh, what's your favorite? Usually whatever one I'm eating at the time. <laughs> I, 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 I agree with Barbara. The, the coffee, it is Hawaiian coffee, and it really makes a difference. Yeah. I don't think any other coffee ice cream can hold a candle to it. Yeah, I'll stick to whatever I have in uh, my hand at the moment. <laughs> you know, yeah. a fun thing about the coffee, Russell, is that it's grown right nearby. It's just up the hill from us. And Paul's brother, Dave, is a coffee roaster and he's next door to us. And so he has he does a custom roast for Paul's specs just for the ice cream. Who comes up with the, the new ideas for the flavors? Is that something that you guys do together or is there input from uh, outside? Actually, it is based on the customers. When we do events, which we haven't too much in COVID. So we're mm -hmm. They're just I, coming back. I had to come up with some on my own during COVID. <laughs> we get a test during the pandemic. So this is one that the customers kept asking for. So finally, I put out Ube just as a special for a little bit. And it just kind of took off. It went crazy. And I went to the Foodland buyer and said, well, the Ube special is about run its course and we're going to do this other flavor next. And he looked at me and said, you're not taking Ube away. <laughs> it's our number three seller. There's no way you're taking that away. So, you know, so we listened to him and uh, Ube is on the permanent roster now. Yeah. And we're always looking for guinea pigs to try and tell it, give us feedback. Oh, where can I sign up? Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, looking back, what piece of advice would you offer to someone starting a small business that you wish you had known when you started? I would definitely encourage anyone, especially if you're in some kind of consumer product, take advantage of the farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. We use the uh, Food Lovers Farmer's Markets. Pam and Annie do an amazing job. They're in a number of locations around the island. And for a very little bit amount of money, you can get face-to-face -to, -face to people who don't know you, who have never seen you before, and all of their experience is, what are you selling? Mm -hmm. We all love our mothers, but they lie to us. <laughs> Whatever you put out, they'll say it's the best they've ever had. Mm -hmm. But 
you need to find impartial people to see, do they buy it or not? Yeah. Do they, what's their reaction? More importantly, do they come back and buy it the next week? More importantly, do they tell their friends about it? And if they don't tell their friends about it and they don't rebuy it, you probably are in trouble. Yeah. And you've learned that for some Pretty tens cheap. of dollars, really cheap. I think I would say- Get a Barbara. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot run a, bar, a business without a barber. <laughs> well, I, it sort of goes with what I was going to say. Is like, if you aren't a numbers person, if you're not an accountant, if you don't know bookkeeping, and if you don't know how to read a financial statement, get someone who does. If it's an uncle, if it's a friend, if it's whatever it is, you need to understand the numbers of your business. That's critical. It's just critical, really. And I would also say we benefited. It wasn't until 2017, we'd already been in business for four years, that we established a relationship with a banker. And we were really glad we did that at the time we did, because we kind of started out with a, a loan for a delivery van, not life and death established the relationship, got to know each other. And then as a result, when we did have bigger needs, then we already have a working relationship. He already knows us. He already understands our business and believes in us. And so I would say, go out of your way to make a relationship with your banker when you're little and you don't need them. And then when the time comes, you'll really have an ally and that's important. Paul, Barbara, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoy talking ice cream with you. Uh, I, I wish it. we were sharing one right now. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was Paul and Barbara Logan, owners of Uncle Kula's Ice Cream Sandwiches. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have links to more information on the business and locations on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And that's it for today. Tomorrow, we continue to hear from candidates in the 2nd Congressional District. It's Jill Takuda up next to bat. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 